Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers in the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm Annie Coulson, Digital Editor at Biotechniques, and I'll be your host for this special episode from the FENS Forum, which was held in Paris in July. Alterations in the gut microbiota have been associated with many psychiatric disorders, including addiction. And at the forum, I had the chance to sit down with three experts to discuss their research into the relationship between the gut-brain axis and addiction, before their symposium on the same topic. In the chat, we discussed the challenges currently faced when treating addiction. But the big challenge, the two big challenges we have in the medical field are twofold. One is the number of medications is very small. The role of the gut-brain axis in other addictions. I think the undernutrition or maladaptive feeding behavior is critical for many, actually, psychiatric disorders. And what our experts think about gut health as a magical wellness topic. Do not believe in those people selling you the golden compound, magic compound, which will restore your gut microbiota and improve your health and even your lifespan. But first off, let's start with introductions. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us uh, this morning. Uh, I'm Ben Boutrell and I'm working at the uh, Lausanne University Hospital, University of Lausanne, Switzerland. As you understood, we are very interested in the gut microbiota brain axis with the idea that uh, actually we may be capable by targeting the gut uh, microbiota to reverse certain behaviors including excessive drugs, namely alcohol. Thank you. Um, Lorenzo? Hello. Hi. Um, my name is Lorenzo Olejo. I'm a physician and scientist at the National Institute of Health in the United States. So I work here in the Intramural Research Program. It's a research program within the NIH. And my lab is primarily a clinical lab, although we also perform rodent and non-human primate translational work. In general, our interest is on uh, understanding mechanism of addiction, developing new medications, and the specific angle of my team is to look at gut-brain access pathways, including the gut microbiota, but also neuroendocrine pathways to identify new targets and develop new treatments. Natalie? Thank you, and thank you for the invitation. So my name is Nathalie Delzen, and so I'm professor of metabolism and nutrition at the University Catholique de Louvain, which is based in Belgium, Brussels. And so I think I'm a little bit exotic here because my background is mostly just to try to understand how nutrients interact with the gut microbiota to improve metabolic health, but also behavior for a few years. And then with colleagues working as psychiatricians, so we had the opportunity just to study this effect of nutrients targeting the gut microbiota in alcohol dependence. So I'm from Biotechniques, so it would be great to hear about the lab research methods and techniques that you're using in your work. Well, we do use a wide range of approach, experimental approach. comes from the 16S mRNA sequencing. Basically, it means how identifying the composition of the gut microbiota, namely the microbiome. Then we use different approaches to measure inflammation markers, either in the blood, so in the periphery, or in the brain directly, because 
even the brain can manifest an inflammatory response. And we do also develop a wide range of behavioral testing in order to investigate whether or not by manipulating the gut microbiota, we can ultimately change the behavioral strategies. So at the molecular level, we use kind of similar approaches and pretty much standardizing how we measure gut microbiota, metabolism, and also looking at the peripheral biomarkers in the blood, primarily of cytokines, inflammatory markers, and hormones. But studying patients, of course, we are quite interested to look at the behavior. We do use behavior tasks in our rodents, uh, but then we try to translate these tasks in um, humans. So, for example, today actually we show some data from uh, baboons, from non-human primates, that are model of a binge alcohol drinking. And then as we try to translate this information to humans, we use sort of a small simple sites, a proof of concept in human studies, where we try to disentangle the behavior of our patients in a well-controlled setting. So for example, we study alcohol-seeking using a bar laboratory setting where we induce craving in real time. We also use a virtual reality and uh, fMRI to look at neurocircuitry, resting state, and the task-based behavior. Okay, thank you. So from our side, so what we do is we recapitulate also how the gut microbiota could play eventually a, a causal role in the alterations of behavior and so on. And so we take the gut microbiome coming from humans suffering from alcohol dependence and we transfer this uh, uh, to mice. And so we have a protocol established for the, this context of obesity. But here we do that and so it allows us to maybe just to have a better idea how the gut-brain axis may exist. And we have shown, for example, and I will explain just more in detail later on, uh, that, for example, some alterations of the metabolism in the liver or tissue may also be part of this gut-brain axis. And so for sure for the metabolomics and also the analysis of the gut microbiome, so we collaborate with experts in the field of metabolomics, namely in the context of a European project to have a, an overview of all the metabolites in the fecal materials, but also uh, in the blood and in the brain that could be part of the story. Okay, great, thank you. So addiction is notoriously difficult to treat. Is there a scope to translate this to the clinic and what sort of form would that take? How many hours do you give me to address this question? Well, let's be honest uh, about it. Um, and Lorenzo, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, we're not capable, uh, even nowadays, to effectively treat alcoholism, for instance. Which means that either we've been confused over the past 50 years and uh, either didn't target the right targets or our theoretical assumptions were not correct or we haven't identified yet the technology required to deeply investigate the roots of the disease. I would say that the field that we are interested in brings some kind of a revolution because it totally shifts. It's a paradigm shift. We are not anymore focused on the brain and the periphery, I mean the body, of the host, the mammal, 
And this is quite striking. We will be discussing it during the session. What is ultimately the role of these microorganisms we developed ourselves with? And what is their ultimate contribution to our capability for decision-making? And it's an open-range discussion, actually. I don't have the answer. Well, I will just add, I guess, it's a very com complex question. So the reality is, you know, we believe addiction is a brain disease, which doesn't mean that we have to focus our medication development, therapeutic development just to the brain. I think the symposium today is an example how you can look at pathways that are not directly in the brain, but may have a role in the addiction behavior somehow directly or indirectly. And I think the reason why the work we all do in this area is important is because, as you point out, we, don't, we have not done a good job in treating patients with addiction. That doesn't mean that we don't have a treatments for addiction. Actually, we do have treatments for addiction. We have a behavior treatment which are effective for patients. Contingency management is an example, but also cognitive behavior therapy. And we have a medications approved that are effective to treat addiction. You know, we have medications for opioid use disorder, for smoking cessation, for alcohol use disorder. But the big, actually, the two big challenges we have in the medical field are twofold. One is the number of medications is very small. If you compare the medication we have for addiction compared to medications we have for diabetes, hypertension, cancer, you name it, the number is very small. So we do need to develop a new treatment. That's where research like the one we will show today is important to develop in your treatments. And then I think the other challenge, which in a sense it goes beyond think, the scope of work of today's symposium, is that even if we do have a treatment for addiction, we don't use this treatment clinical practice. And that's a bigger discussion, goes into the issue of not recognize addiction as a medical problem. It goes to issues in terms of um, education and training of clinicians and the stigma around addiction for which, for example, if you compare to depression, there's this big gap where there is no investment in helping these people. Okay, thank you. So from my side, what, what I think in view of the collaboration with the psychiatricians, they have installed a, a protocol at the hospital where the alcohol use disorder patients come for three weeks for detoxification programs. And with my colleagues, Philippe de, de Timari, namely, and Peter Starkel, so we have just seen that the nutrition is really, really bad in those patients. And it can also be part of the way just to take into account the, the fact that, okay, they, they respond to the alcohol withdrawal, but for a long time, for a long period after. And so from my side, so I think that maybe we can bring something just to have a better idea which nutritional advice is what to do just to try to restore this undernutrition they suffer of and which is part of the problem also. Thank you. And so I think, Ben, you touched upon it, but the work has been predominantly done in alcohol, but do you think similar processes are at play in, in say, drug or food addictions? Well, Natalie just mentioned it. I think the undernutrition or the maladaptive nutrition, this maladaptive feeding behavior, is critical for 
many actually psychiatric disorders. Obviously, all disorders linked to feeding, it makes sense. We all have in mind obesity, all have in mind anorexia, but I think we can extend our view. You mentioned specifically other drugs than alcohol. There are already coming in the field a few preclinical, I'm not aware of any clinical investigations about it, linking cocaine seeking and taking with the gut microbiota. In my opinion, there is no reason that what we will be discussing later on is limited to what we will be showing. If we consider with a, an extended view, a larger view, a broader view, that those microorganisms do play a role in driving the vehicle we are, let's consider that they do play a critical, or they do critically contribute to many behavioral strategies of ours, including those bad ones. Yeah, I guess I would just add, so I think the short answer is yes, the information we are generating in the alcohol field in the context of a gut brain may definitely expand it to other addictive drugs. And as Benjamin pointed out, there are already data, for example, in a mouse model of a cocaine seeking a cocaine conditional place preference, for example. I think what is important is, you know, alcohol, in a sense, is a unique addictive drug because, you know, for society reasons, because it's part of our society, but also for biochemical reasons, because alcohol comes with calories, although historically they've been labeled as empty calories. So the effect on nutrition that you have with alcohol are quite unique. And also because of the significant effects on peripheral tissues, in particular the liver. But that said, I think there are a lot of commonalities between alcohol and other drugs in terms of addiction. And it's also true that the addicted drugs like you know, cannabis, cocaine, etc., they do have profound effects on appetite as well. So I would say the bottom line, I guess, is that there are differences. Definitely when you look at difference, alcohol stands a little in a different arena compared to other addicted drugs. In fact, even at the NIH, we have two institutes, one specific for alcohol, which is in the AAA, and one for other drugs, which is NIDA. We actually work on both institutes. But there are also similarities that eventually some of the narrow circuitry, the mechanism, how and why people develop alcohol and substance use disorders, they definitely overlap because there are a variety of reasons, including stress, in anxiety, in other factors that, that may lead the people to develop both. And in fact, the last thing I would say, there is a lot of comorbidity where people who have alcohol use disorder, they also tend to use other addictive drugs. Typically, smoking is very common, but they also they have addiction for opioids, for cocaine, etc. So comorbidity in clinical practice is more the reality than the exception. Thank you. What I would like just to add to this, because I, I really believe in all what you said, both of you, it is that it is quite strange that sometimes we see a parallel and similar components in pathologies like obesity and related metabolic disorders, for example, and also alcohol use disorder. And so if we focus on the gut and gut microbiome, it's strange to see that there are some missing bacteria in both cases that may play an anti-inflammatory role. 
And so maybe just trying to unravel which microbes, set of microbes, which set of metabolites can be targeted in one of those disease could also be helpful for the other one because there are common features, disturbances of the gut barrier, for example, that can promote the inflammation. And so maybe I think that we have just to, just not to see alcohol disorders alone, for sure, other drugs, but also maybe some pathologies related to metabolic alterations. I would just add another layer of comments about what Lorenzo said about smoking, tobacco smoking. And I do believe tobacco smoking should be targeted, namely because tobacco smoking is very closely linked to diabetes. And it, it would be very interesting to figure out what would be the connection between the gut microbiota, diabetes, and tobacco smoking as a background. Now, for you to be quite skeptical about how microorganisms may drive up to the human behavior, just consider that life is competition, okay? And life within your gut is very competitive. It's all a matter of environment. If the human being, because of its, his own environment or his feeding behavior, do manipulate, it does manipulate the environment of the gut, then by opportunism, the gut microbiota is going to change. And if organisms that are actually, they work by, with a very high metabolism, they do need a caloric load. The idea is that they could send a signal up to the brain to drive the behavior and eat an extra amount of calorie, okay? So that these organisms can compete within this specific environment. And then you enter in a vicious circle. And ultimately, it's a yin and a yang environment. And when it goes for the bad, it even goes for the worse afterwards, for the local environment, and then for the host, which is the human being. And so a slightly different question. The gut microbiome and so gut health is a quite a hot topic with scientists, but also with the general public. And there's a lot of talk about probiotics um, and just gut health in general. So I wondered what your opinions on that are and if it impacts how you communicate your research, particularly to lay audiences. Yes, so, so concerning this, so it's, it's quite difficult just to know exactly how to, how to deal with this type of, of questions, to be honest. And so I think that we have just to, just to have a multidisciplinary approach. And this term, I know it is something that it is very difficult just to assess the gut microbiome for sure. We have to go with specialists and so on. Things are evolving every day, I would say, in terms of outcomes, techniques, and so on. So I would say, in view of the type of analysis that can be performed, we always have just to take care of not going for small companies offering that they are going just to give you your ID card of your microbiome in view of your addiction and so on. But to go, we are in, in the field of science and we are now for the moment discovering again. And so I think just always take care of what is done from a scientific point of view 
be careful with what is offered in the other way. And so in view of the discoveries we are all, all making for the moment, I think that we can give some advices and so on, but always the specialists in the field, psychiatricians and other persons involved in the management of the disease. So I have to keep the floor and not to believe that one single compound, for example, that is sold somewhere because it changes the gut microbiota will be efficacious for all the pathologies, including this. So my message is always believe in scientists and go to the medical doctors prior going for any miracle outcome. Great. So I think we can just fit one quick question. So where are you hoping to take your research in the future? Looking for money. Give me some money and then I'll be able to continue my research. Now, let's consider, you know, it's a fantasy. We have unlimited funding. I totally agree with uh, Nathalie and uh, even Lorenzo when uh, he referred to the clinical aspects and uh, the complexity of uh, targeting human beings with specific medications. We are all different. So what I mean is that we still don't know why a specific medication does work in one patient but does not in another. So Natalie said very wisely, do not believe in those people selling you the golden compound, magic compound, which will restore your gut microbiota and improve your health and even your lifespan. Nowadays, we don't know yet how it works, okay? I'm gonna give you my uh, opinion and this is what I'm convinced about up to now. I'll be changing my mind tomorrow. The importance is the equilibrium. For many years, the brain has been considered as a black box. Well, I do consider the gut, gut microbiota, as a black box. And there is no joke about the word here. We don't know how it works. We don't know what is good. We don't know what is bad specifically. But we do know when there is some kind of a dysbiosis, a word that we try to use very cautiously, but let's say when the environment is deleterious or when the environment promotes health. So this is what we will be working on in the near future. And right now, I don't have any better idea than using samples to transfer the microbiota. So just keep in mind that in states, I'm not aware of any companies in Europe, but in states, there are people building up a poo bank, you know, a stool bank. Meaning that you just deliver a poo in a box every day. You're given something like 50 bucks, I guess, $50. And they do collect this poo bank with the idea that one day or another, there will be wealth in this bank. Because even if we don't know how it works, we may be capable of offering the capacity of transferring microbiota, gut microbiota, with a specific pill, you know. We don't know why it works, but it restores a health-promoting environment. And this is what I'm very much interested in. Thank you. Well, I will be short, I guess. Um, just to repeat what Natalie and Benjamin said, I think the work on gut-brain addiction should really be framed in the context of precision medicine. So point being, we often say we want to develop new treatments for people with addiction, but I think we should say we want to develop a new treatments for some people with addiction. So point being that 
I think the earlier we try to identify the sub-populations who responded to a certain treatment, the better, because the idea to find a treatment that works for everybody is not going to work, just like it doesn't work for hypertension, for cancer, etc. And the only thing I would like just maybe to, to add to, to your very important comments, it is that maybe should we also think about how to avoid alcohol dependence and so just to work with the very young people also because they are at the age where everything is changing, all the environment is changing, including also some biological functions or even like the gut microbiome. And so I think that maybe we have to think about having also an idea of what happens quite early in the process to try just to, to fight this before it becomes a, a disease. Okay, great. So that's all my questions. Thank you for answering them. So if we want to take audience questions. First of all, thank you for the talk. I had two questions, uh, one concerning the nutrition and another one on the addiction topic. The one on the nutrition, I, if I remember correctly, I read that, for example, if you have stressed pregnant mice and if you give them a fibrous enriched diet, you could protect the, the offspring from all the deleterious effects of maternal stress. What do you think about it and do you know how it works? Yes, so working on these fields, so I'm not working in these fields specifically of the pregnancy and so on, but I think that we have just to know, and now there are a lot of publications, that there is also a dialogue that may also include some microbial related elements between the mother and the fetus. And so there are a lot of controversies of if there are microbes going to the uterus because there are a lot of debates about that. I more believe that some components dependent on the gut microbiome, like the inflammation, for example, even a low to an inflammation or some metabolites can also establish this dialogue. So for me, it's not a surprise just to see that you may have also protection and take care of the mother's nutrition also in this field. And the, the other question I had concerning the addiction is really a curiosity question. I heard a long time ago that for people showing addictive behavior, I think it was especially drug addiction, that if you included them in um, social environment and making them feel that they had a role in society, having them work in charity organizations, they showed less addictive behavior. If I remember correctly, it was also reproduced in mice. Have you heard about it and do you think, I don't know if you could elaborate on it? Yeah. Well, I would say a couple of things. In, uh, in real world, we know that the society support plays a key role, right? When you work as a physician, patient with addiction, the social workers play a key role. So you're discharging your patient, but in addition to your medical treatment, having a social worker that they can help to reintegrate the patient to the society is a critical, right? And we also know that you know, putting people in jail, it doesn't work. So the putting people back to the society it's actually the way to go. Ken Silverman Hopkins has been showing that if you give a job to unemployed people, they reduce or stop their use of drugs. And he has done that in experimental studies, so well controlled. Both, I think you refer to basic science. So that's actually quite interesting work, because it's kind of a back translating what we know in the real world to an experimental setting. So there is a work by Yavin Shaham and Naida and actually from um, Marco Veniro, who was here, I think yesterday he gave a talk, and now he's a faculty at UMD, where they showed there was a National Science paper 
in rats, now in mice, that if you give to the animal the choice between using a drug, could be cocaine, methamphetamine, opioid, or playing with another animal, they will choose playing with the animal. So it's a kind of an alternative choice of a social reward compared to the drug reward. And the data are quite remarkable. So now Yavin Shaham, Mark Veneero, they have been expanding this work, but that's the bottom line. You know, the, the, the animal model, they actually build a cage, almost like an Ikea cage, to have the ability for the animal to choose between more drug or another animal to play, and they will choose the animal. And these are experiments done really in a very well, in a very elegant way. They're also controlling for a variety of other co-founders. So, and now I think they are starting to understand the molecular mechanism, how. I think then one question would be whether treatments like oxytocin could then play a role in addiction. And right now, NAAA has been conducting a multi-clinical trial exactly to look at oxytocin as a potential new treatment for alcohol use disorder. Actually, we had a symposium in Orlando, RSA just a few days ago looking at data on oxytocin across rodents, non-human primacy humans, suggesting that, in fact, oxytocin may be a promising new target for alcohol and substance use disorder. Thank you. So that's it from our Coffee with the Experts at FENS. You can find more of our FENS and neuroscience content over on www.biotechneats.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye.